Welcome to Fencing Stories with me, Jason Brody, And me, Nicholas Partridge, a monthly podcast about fencing and the fencing scene. So, Nick, what admin have we got to talk about? Well, we've got the email address and the new website. So we were on WordPress originally, but now we've moved across to our podcast provider. So we are fencingstories.podbean.com. And our email address is fencingstories at gmail.com. So if you want to get in touch with us, please do. Why do we want people to get in touch with us? What can they send us that's interesting? We want to know about, because we're not abreast of all of the events that occur. So any events or competitions that are upcoming, details about your club and if you wish to promote your club through Fencing Stories and anything else that we might have missed because we can't be everywhere all the time. So we, yeah, we need to know anything that anybody wants to tell us that is interesting about their competitions, club nights, any good stories you have, because this is Fencing Stories. So if you've had a good event, if you think that you want to talk about that, let us know. And on the website, you can download all of the previous podcasts and it's got all our contact details if you would like to get in touch. Nick, what have you been up to over the last few weeks? Well, at the end of the episode, the last one, you'll remember I did some interviews after the Duffy. So I just want to talk a little bit about how much fun that was. There were lots and lots of teams. There were obviously Irish teams. There were five teams from Germany, four teams from the UK, and even an Italian team. And obviously, we fenced some of them. I don't think we fenced the Italians this year, but definitely made contact with them. And I I think I might be chatting with one of them later on in uh, Fencing Stories. Looking forward to it. And then the only other thing I've really done is I just went to visit, you know how sometimes I'm at more than one club at the same time? You like visiting your clubs, you're a club a club whore. Perhaps tourist? <laughs> tourist, whatever you want to style yourself as. Yeah, I think, I think tourist is what I prefer. So I went to CADS and uh, that was quite, so CADS are down in Chelmsford, I was I was working down in um, East Essex recently. I thought I'd take my kit with me. They met on a Monday night. They met. They meet a couple of times a week. I had a chat with uh, their coach. Lots of international fencers because I think of the University of Essex. Do you think the university aspect improves the club? There was a fencer from Toulouse who gave me a lot of trouble, but definitely he was a very he was a good quality fencer. Mm. Yeah, because. Um... I always feel like the clubs that have the the university fences there, they always seem more energised. I think, however, it does cause problems because you've got that transitionary where they're there and then they're not there and then they're there and then... People coming and going, yeah. And then there's a throughput. But then, of course, that just brings new blood into the club. But I think think that can cause its own problems. It's definitely better than just being three blades. (laughs) I mean, I was talking to Michael Robinson, which you'll hear that conversation coming up. He goes to, he he fences four nights a week. It's amazing how much work he gets done. Made me feel really guilty. What's the furthest you are willing to drive to train at a different club? So I I live near Cannock. The nearest club to me is Wolverhampton, which I've not visited. Nearby then is Telford. Then there's Shrewsbury. So these Shrewsbury's probably an hour and fifteen, and then Three Blades is an hour and fifteen as well. Yeah, so it's it's quite a way to travel, isn't it? Three Blades sometimes it's just an hour of fencing. I was based near Clacton, and Chelmsford was twenty minutes. It was like I was on holiday. What sort of costs are you having to pay for visitor fees? 
that was eight pounds and normally it's yeah, up, up here it seems seems to be about five pounds but cads was eight but it was good quality so i don't mind yeah i think you sort of five to ten pounds is reasonable for a couple of visits what do northampton charge I think and i'm going to be wrong but i think it's five pounds at the minute I think you're wrong. I've got a feeling it's 10. Yeah, but they did change it for a while. I don't know if that's a permanent change or not. It was interesting. I went to the pairs competition at Leon Pool recently and really felt a big difference between the London fencers and non-London fencers. Tell us more about that, Jason. Yeah, it was the first Leon Pool pairs competition for one male, one female sort of a team competition. It was horrible. Uh, I fenced terribly. My wife carried me pretty much all the way. She's the top 50 fencer, Jason, you know? She is, so it's to be expected. I, I just really struggled to get into the groove that day. And um, like I was saying, all the people who train in London, you could just tell they were training a lot with a lot of fencers of very high quality. And I felt like I struggled to compete with that that day. I guess it's the same in other sports like tennis and snooker. It depends who you train with. you you'll get to a level and if you're at near that level but maybe slightly above you're not you can't go much beyond you've got to find I think you've got to train at a higher level part of the reason why I left Northampton and went to OPS was because I was finding Northampton was a a little bit of a, a trek but also quality was higher at OPS without being disrespectful well I think um it's about consistency of quality fences. We've had some parts uh, in my local clubs where we've had three or four top 100 male APSs training regularly. And it's great. You, you can feel the progression you're making trying to keep up with them. And then over a maybe six-month period, they start to disappear. And I presume when you're at a bigger club, that consistency is there long-term. And that's where you can make really good progress. You've got to ask yourselves, what are they getting out of it? If they're not getting... <laughs> why are they fencing me, you mean? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to be rude, but why are they turning up and fencing you when they could be turning up and fencing, I don't know, James Gowan? Yeah, well, James Gowan. He's another one who has done some great stuff at OPS and gone on a bronze medal at the last Elite Epe. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, in fact, I was I was refereeing, I was there. <laughs> Once again, sorry, Jason, I was I was there. But uh, yeah, so it's just, it's nice to see these sort of fences making that progress. So as we're talking a little bit about events, uh, I'll just go through some of the events that have recently taken place. So there was the the Pairs Epe at Leon Paul. There's recently as well been the Leon Paul Vets Epe. There's a whole load of regional BYC, the youth uh, qualifiers, I believe, to get into the, the championships. There's been the British Schools Team Championships. That one's tricky for me to say. And also regional senior championships in the Midlands, certainly four of clubs and Coxmoor Woods did did well with those. There's the Welsh closed competition. And then there's been the European cadets and European juniors in Estonia. It's been a busy few weeks. It has. With the European cadets, we've had some good results for GB. We had a third place in the EPE for the for the cadet males and second in the foil for the cadet males and then in the juniors the gb girls in the foil and in the fa they came fourth but fourth place doesn't get a medal in the team they fence off still that's the worst good progress i think 
Yeah, no, it feels like we've got some strong fences out there at the moment. Right, so what events have we got coming up soon, Nick? There's the Senior Nationals coming up and also the GB Cup. Yeah, so the Senior Nationals is on April the 15th for the individuals and April the 16th. And that's open to the top 50 fences in each category, if I'm correct. I haven't got my invitation through yet and I won't. What about you? Oh, I think it's 95 quid. That outprices me. Although, and I, I, I guess if I worked a bit harder, my ranking could get a bit higher. But 425th is okay. Yeah, it's, every ranking is okay if you're happy with it. Is £95 a fair price for a competition, in your opinion? No, but it's the most prestigious competition. Is it double ranking points? It's got a massive multiplier. Um, My maths isn't good enough to work out if it's double, triple, or whatever. I think they spin a wheel, depending on where you finish. That seems fair. That seems fair. I mean, all all of the adverts on telly are spinning wheels, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and the team competition on the Sunday, the 16th, because um, I was at the Senior Nationals last year, that team competition looked ferocious. There's some really competitive fencing in that. Did it look like fun? Not, I wouldn't have had fun. I think they were having fun. I would not have had fun in that. Just, just pain and disappointment. Top level fencing. What can you tell me about the GB Cup? So the GB Cup is entered through the regions. So you need to enter your regional senior championships to get an entry to there. And I think you have to be outside the top 100. I don't know if it's um, number 100 or 101. Top top 50. Outside the top 50. That's what I'm saying here. Yeah, ranked outside the top 50 of national senior rankings in their weapon for women's foil, epee sabre and men's sabre, or the top 80 for men's foil and epee as of January the 1st, 23. That's what it says on the website. Well, I'm eligible, but money's a little bit tight, so I don't think I'll be doing that either. But it's a great competition, the GB Cup. I think it's nice that they're putting forward this competition to create a competitive edge for fencers. It's in that middle ground, isn't it? It's that middle ground of fencers who are not at the very sharp end, more recreational, there to enjoy yourselves. Maybe you're quite serious and doing two or three times a week. Yeah, and last year when I looked at who was in the men's epee, certainly I was glad that I wasn't doing it because it looked tough. There's some really great fences competing in it. It would be good to see if it was available to view. What, to stream online? Yeah, if it was available on YouTube, we'll have to check that out and find out for our listeners. Also, there is the Open Senior Nationals coming up in June, I think, which is open to everybody. Is that different? To the national championships, that's in April, isn't it? Yeah, no. This so this, this one is open to any fencers, and it also will have a ranking point multiplier, and quite possibly also be ninety five pounds entry. So for two hundred quid, if you want a top hundred ranking, it's there for the taking. Well, I think that about wraps it up, Jason. Thanks very much. Looking forward to seeing you next time, Nick. Absolutely. Let's record in a month or so. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Fencing Stories, Tim Coveney. Hello. Hello. Tim joins us from southwest Surrey, but is originally from Hull. He's a master armourer. I'd like to start by asking, what is a master armourer? Yeah, so master armourer is one of the grades within the British Fencing Guild of Armourers, which is the body that trains and provides armoury for people around the UK. Master armourer is the, the highest grade of that. We have four grades, apprentice, journeyman, armourer and 
Master Armourer. Master Armourer is awarded by nomination of all the other Master Armourers, so it's a sort of recognition of your peers that your skills are at a high enough level to qualify for the title. And the, the, the rough level of that is that, in theory, as a Master Armourer, I'm suitably experienced and qualified to run weapons control and armory at any event up to and including an Olympics or a World Championships. So you've mentioned there the British Fencing Guild of Armourers. Can you tell us a bit more about that as an organisation and what they do? Within the UK, it's the British Fencing Guild of Armourers. It was was set up at the behest of British Fencing in the early 90s to sort of build the skills so that we could maintain skills for sort of doing weapons controls at major internationals and things like that. And it's been going along ever since. It's a bit it's got a bit in the background these last few years we're trying to turn that around a bit and internationally there's no real recognized international body for it um, again that's something that's maybe changing over the next few years particularly in europe but for the moment it's each country just does its own thing really can you tell us what you mean by turning it around what we'd like to see i think is something a bit more structured internationally kind of along the lines of the sort of the fie refereeing um setup so that there's sort of international recognition and qualification so that armory can be dealt with the same in all countries, particularly in terms of the weapons control side of things, the sort of the, the officiating side of it. We know that it's done quite differently in different countries in terms of the level of rigor, you know, how testing and control is carried out. And it's something I think that fencing would really benefit from seeing that more standardised. So I'm guessing there can be anomalies between different organisations doing weapons control. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about weapons control and what that involves? Fencers come to the UK for tournaments for the first time if they're coming for weapons control. So like for the Eden Cup, for example, we get fencers at that who are coming to the UK for the first time. And we seem to have got a bit of a reputation as UK armourers that uh, we're notably strict on weapons controls and we'll get people sort of visibly sigh with relief when we pass their kit and we wouldn't say we were strict we would just say you know we try and follow the rules properly because ultimately when we're doing these weapons controls it's because we're trying to make sure that firstly everyone's kit is safe everyone's kit is fair and we're doing that because we want people to have enjoyable fun time competing they're not going to get to do that if people's kits rigged to cheat or just isn't up to scratch or if they're running the risk of seriously injuring themselves or somebody else. So that's why we're doing it. But if other places sort of give it a bit of a slipshod thing or, you know, we'll get stuff that people say, yeah, oh, this passed here last week. Well, maybe it did. We don't know the armor who did that. We're not going to take their word for it. We're going to use our own eyes and say that doesn't meet the standards. Can I ask you, um, how do organizers arrange cover for events and what sort of events typically need cover? Armourers are invited to all kinds of events. We do everything from sort of little local junior tournaments up through to opens, national championships. We do FIE events, so A grades and so on. And we do big um, international championships as well. The last one that we've done various ones in the UK. I, a few years ago, did the, I think it was the European Modern Pentathlon Championships. We did the weapons control for that in Bath. Um, that was quite fun. And obviously, a, a lot of the armourers currently serving worked at the 2012 Olympics. I took up armoury just after that, but uh, a lot of the currently serving armourers were all there. In terms of how uh, organisers go about contacting us or finding armourers for events, some of them will just know, they will know uh, an armourer who they've used before. And they will just get in touch with them personally or 
they might see an armorer at another event and come over and say, oh, we need somebody for this weekend. Can you help? So through the grapevine, we get it like that. The other way we can do it is that the big tournaments, so for example, national championships or the British Youth Championships, the organisers of those will get in touch with the head of the Guild of Armourers. That's currently an armourer called Andrew Goodyear. They'll ask him to put together a team because for those big events, there'll maybe a team of four to eight of us, depending on the event. And he'll reach out to all the armourers who are part of the Guild and ask who's available and we'll put together a team for that event and that's an effective and good way of doing it it seems to work and uh, you know we'd, we'd invite absolutely any organizer you, you know if you can't find somebody locally do get in touch with the guild uh, or there's also we have a facebook group um, called ask the armorers um, which is there for anybody to use if you've got any queries about armory either finding someone who can help you out locally or got a general question you know we're always happy to take questions on there and if people want to get in touch through that um, to help find cover for an event please do you know we'll, we'll de- definitely try and help you out we mentioned ask the armorer before on the last podcast i think it's an incredible resource for finding out information if you're not sure of anything yeah we get some we get some fun questions and as i say it's always fun fun to sort of get the problems we're, we're always happy to teach people this is part of what we do you know we want to make get these skills out there we don't tr- see it as something that uh, is we we need to keep to ourselves it's skills we want out there in the in the fencing world so at this point rather segues nicely into my next question what are the easy problems that fencers can fix themselves first thing fencers need to do is they need to learn how to do the basic checks so that's you know plug the weapon into a box how do you check the weight the gauge if it's an epee how do you check that your body wire is working and you, most of it is just literally plug it in the box does it respond right but it's also to know what it means if it doesn't go right so okay if i put if i'm doing epee for example if i put my gauge in i press the tip down oh the lights still come on now i know that i need to adjust the travel spring because that's too long okay but that level of knowledge of this has failed but this is going to be why that tells me what I need to do about it. So learning, you know, that sort of basic diagnosis, and most of it you can do either just on piece with the box, or um, if you carry just like a little multimeter, that lets you do pretty much everything. Easy fixes, missing grub screws, referees should be checking for those, and that's just straightforward. Big tip for that is magnetize your screwdriver. You'll spend ages fishing for grub screws, and once you drop them on the floor, you'll never find them again. Magnetize a screwdriver for doing your grub screws, but do carry just a good fine point grub screw screwdriver. Changing out weight springs for both foil and epee. Dead simple. Take the tip out, take the old spring out, put the new one in. No problem there. Adjusting travel is reasonably easy for an epee. The key thing there is to try not try and avoid bending the spring. Uh, it's tightening up. A good way to do that can be to actually slip your little screwdriver inside the spring just to keep it straight. Those are all these things. Oh, and, and foil tape as well. Everyone thinks there's some sort of black art about taping a foil. There really, really isn't. It's dead simple. You just need the tape to go down 15 centimeters below the top. If you just carry a little tape measure, that'll do you fine. And the only thing we'd say is you want one length of tape that's going to do the blade below the barrel and then another length of tape just to wrap around the top. And the only reason for that is if you ever present your sword at a weapons control, it's always got to be presented with a tip bare, so you can't have any tape on that. So rather than having to retape the whole weapon after it goes through weapons control, if you've just got a loop around the top, you can just replace that much easier. So it all sounds like fairly simple and easy stuff to sort. 
Yeah, no. I mean, the key thing is that, you know, what we'd say is when we get people coming to us with a problem, it's, you know, we want them to be, you know, you, we're always happy to see people coming over. And it's when it's something beyond the basics that, you know, okay, this is doing this, but I don't know why. Bring it to an armorer because, you know, we fixed, you know, among us, we've all fixed hundreds of weapons. We've almost certainly come across whatever's causing the fault, and we can probably tell you right away, whereas you might be there fiddling for ages. So if you're unsure what it is, come and ask us. We're always there to help. Yeah, and this is why the Ask the Armorer is such a handy resource to have on Facebook. I've got an armory-related fencing joke. Go on, then. Why can't foilists work in a morgue? Ah, no, I did hear this one, yes, because every time they get dead spot, they find a dead spot, they have to change their jacket. We had Paul Wilmot to thank for that one. It's very good, yes. It's interesting, the um, foil jackets, yeah, they, they are a pain, but again, they're one of these things that so often are actually, it's actually quite easy to fix. So at the Eden Cup last year, so the A-grade FIE foil tournament we run in the UK, the... When we were doing the weapons control, I think we only failed outright a single Lame for the entire weapons control. But when they were presented to us, we probably failed another 50 or 60. But what we were then doing was literally just get a scrap of Lame fabric and just scrub where the dead patches were. Because usually all it is, is there's just a buildup of dirt and grease on the surface of the Lame. You rub that off. Uh, with just you know a bit of lamy fabric as a mild abrasive and suddenly lo and behold it's working again my next question tim is a little bit of a strange one i feel that armorers are a little bit of a breed amongst themselves so what draws you to be an armorer are there any personality traits that you have in common i think what draws all of us to being armorers is much the same stuff it's you know we like problem solving and we like getting hands-on. We like playing with tools, fixing things. That you know, the major thing. You know, we get all kinds of people who come to armors. One guy who started in the last few years, he was going along to tournaments, but by his own admission, he found fencing deathly boring to watch. He was there because his daughter fenced, and so he had an interest in that. But the rest of the time, he was just bored out of his mind. And then he suddenly noticed there was this group of guys in the corner who had all the toolboxes and everything else. And he came over and started chatting to us and, oh, can I, you know, can I have a go? And he's now regularly out doing armory all around the circuit. And that's, you know, what he enjoys doing at events. You know, he's got no interest in fencing himself, apart from the fact his daughter competes, but he really enjoys getting in there and fixing stuff. And I think that's what we all have. And the other thing is we like helping people. You know, when, when we're at a tournament, you know, you get the, you've all, we've all had the experience, you know, I know I have when you've just got, that day when none of your kit works, none of your weapons work, you know, between every fight, you're frantically fixing things. And just being able to go somebody who'll just take the problem off your hands, have a bit of a laugh with you while they sort it out in front of your eyes, and then you can go back and fence. It's a really great thing when I've had it done for me. And, you know, I really enjoy being able to do that for everyone else. And as I said earlier, we care about fencing and we care about fences. So, you know, a lot of people say, you know, well, you know, why are we so pedantic at weapons control? It's it's as it's because we don't want to see people getting hurt, and we also don't want people to be feeling like they've been cheated because somebody else's kit wasn't good enough. It we do seem to attract a particular breed of people. I think that's because ultimately we've all got to have a laugh together about it. You know, armorers are the first ones into the venue almost always, usually a day before the event. We're the last ones out, 
on the last day because we're packing down and you know we might not you know fencing might finish at six we're probably not on the road while eight nine o'clock at night and on the days in between if it's a multi-day tournament you know we check when we check into a hotel they always tell us you know all oh, breakfast is served six till nine so don't worry about the closing time we'll be there at six because we've got to get to the venue to set it up so it's it's a long day and it can be hard work but we you know we all have a laugh together doing it that's what makes us enjoy it so if you don't get on with us and have a laugh with us then you're probably not going to want to keep doing it because it won't be fun next question is very simple where did fencing start for you so i started fencing in 2005 when i started at university of hull i actually started with vague ideas that oh you know fencing is quite a small sport bit niche but it's an olympic sport you know 2012 it's only seven years away that might be enough time and literally my coach first day of the beginners course just went now some of you might be thinking about 2012 olympics sorry guys you've all come far too late for that i was like oh okay but um yeah fence through uni and fence for the university team for about three three years while i was there captained it for a couple of years but then as i got sort of the end of uni i sort of kind of had a bit of a way up and thought well you know i'm reasonable-ish level competitive fencer on a sort of local level but you know not really getting anywhere nationally and certainly not going to get anywhere internationally but i'd already done some refereeing for like well what's now bucks matches uh, into university matches and i'd enjoyed quite enjoyed that so i thought well you know maybe i can give refereeing a bit of a go see where i go with that so I qualified in all three weapons in 2009 and was then refereeing around the UK circuit for a few more years. But almost one of the first tournaments I did as a referee, I got introduced to the armourers in the sort of the evenings at dinner and stuff and found out really liked them. And they seemed to get on with me. So I you know, kept meeting up with them. And in those days when I was you know, sort of fairly new referee. So at a big tournament, you know, by the time the last 32s were done, you know, that was probably me done for the weekend. You know, I had a, quite a bit of time to kill. So I was going and helping out the armors with packing up and things like that and sort of finding I was enjoying that more. And so I eventually decided, right, actually, do you know what? You know, I'm quite a technical scientific person. I work in the, sci- in, in the sciences. And so I thought, well, actually, you know, maybe that's a better use of my skills. And so I took up armory fully in 2012, just after the Olympics. So I joined the Guild as an apprentice then, made journeyman later that same year. And uh, a year later, took my full armorer's exams in 2013. And then since then, yeah, I've been doing armory, at all kinds of championships, all different tournaments. And yeah, I've made master armorer last year. So my next question really opens up a little bit of controversy. Who's the easiest to deal with from women's sabras to junior foilists? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, well, interestingly, from from the armory, the gender really doesn't make... I, don't, I wouldn't say the gender makes any difference. In terms of the weapons, though... So one gender's not more pushy than the other one? You've not found any significant differences? Um, I mean, when we're sort of seeing fencing, there's... Yeah, you see difference in styles, but certainly in terms of when they come into the armory, there's I wouldn't say there was any particular difference. In terms of the weapons, though, um, saber's the easiest because we never see them. We, we, you know, what goes wrong with a saber? Basically nothing. Although I'm going to have a little bit of a soapbox moment here. Sabres, when you see on the box that there's a white light, either on all the time or flashing, yes, I know you can stick your arm out and you'll test on your opponent. Oh, look, my light comes on as normal. Great. I'll carry on. No, 
don't stop take your wire out change your wire because it's almost certainly the problems there the reason you should do that even though you think the weapon's still working is this if the white light's showing one of the lines in your wire has broken in some way it's or it's not making a good connection now the weapon sabers will work with only one line connected that's fine but if one wire line's gone in your wire chances are the other one's very close to going if you've already got a white light on you're not going to know if that wire breaks midpoint so if you think oh i maybe i didn't quite get the hit on you could lose two or three points with a completely dead weapon in your hand that you're not aware of if there's no light on the box when you set come on guard you know your weapon works also bros please if there's white lights on change your wire it's worth your while it really is soapbox moment over and i guess with all those delicate hits that sabras do you're not necessarily going to realize that there could be a problem until it might be too late exactly that so it really is worth your while do not ignore white lights in terms of foil epi though i mean for which is the most difficult I, foil is the most prone to going actually wrong in terms of actually breaking down epi is the most prone to needing to be adjusted because it's not meeting gauge i mean at an epi tournament 90 percent of the time you're just adjusting travel gauges as an armorer i used to play a game with myself that I'd get a weapon in that failed gauge. Okay, take the tip out, adjust the spring, and then I had to get it exactly right so that the first time I put it back together and tested it, it was it would pass. And I would count, I'd try and keep count of how many times I could do that over a tournament. I did have one tournament where I managed it the entire weekend, never had a single one that needed a second adjustment. I was, I've never managed to repeat it. It only ever happened once, but I was really proud of that one. That sounds to me like a very niche achievement. So congratulations. Next question. What advice would you give juniors with regard to kit? The first advice is kind of one I've already given, but test your weapons. And especially at the end of the bout, go to the referee and say, can I borrow the weight and gauge? And just retest your weapon, because then you know it's working. Then put it aside. Don't play with it. Don't fiddle with it. Don't use it. And then as soon as you stand up on piece for the next fight, you know it's going to work. Kit failing on piece is such a distraction for you. I had a time when I was fencing at the university individuals, the boosters in those days bucks now and i was i was fencing epe and first weapon had failed travel gauge and my i went to get my spare pick my spare up and realized that the metallic end of the tip was missing so it would fail it failed every time we tested on a gauge so i was like oh right okay so i'd gone to the armory to get the travel adjusted on my first one that came back failed again i was borrowing weapons from left right and center trying to get through this pool and there was another guy in the pool as well he was struggling and by the end of it all the, all the rest of my team had finished their pools and were coming back and i was just i just had a stack of epes in the desperate hope that some of them would work it, it's not a fun feeling so make sure you know it's going to pass next thing for juniors if you give your sword to like your parents or your coach or something to take to the armory to get fixed please tell them what's wrong with it the number of times we'll get a parent coming and go oh i've just been given this sword right what's wrong with it uh i don't know they just said it was broken well, all right, we can find out what's wrong with it, but it's much quicker and simpler if you actually tell them what the problem is. So if you're going to give it to somebody else, tell them what the issue is. And last thing I'll say, carry the basic spares. Grub screws for foil, tip tape, springs, have those a stock of those parts in your bag and know how to fit them. You know, basic tools, you want an Allen key, 
you want a point screwdriver with a little magnet so you can magnetize it. If you've got those things, you can do a lot of it yourself there by the side of the piece. And if you don't know how to do it, if you've got the bits, but you don't know how to use them, find an armor at your next tournament, come over and ask to be taught and we'll happily show you how to do it. And if you need to come back and get a refresher anytime, again, just come and ask. We're always happy to help. Thanks, Tim, for a very fulsome answer there. So this podcast is called Fencing Stories. Would you like to tell us your fencing story? I'll tell you a story of a time, the time I think I've felt the most peril during my fencing career. I worked as a games maker, a volunteer at the 2012 Olympics. I worked in the final warmer pool, which was where the fencers went to prepare just before they were called into the call room to go on piste. I was working on the evening of the finals. It was the men's epee and women's sabre final night. And in the women's sabre, the hot favourite for the event was Marielle Zagunis of the US. And she'd won every women's Olympic sabre title there'd ever been. There'd only been two before 2012, and she'd won them both. So she'd never lost an individual Olympic fight. She was the world number one that year. She was the hot favourite to win it. And she, she'd cruised through the early rounds. There'd be no real drama. And she was in the semi-final against Kim Ji-un of Korea. By this point, the backstage area was pretty quiet. All the other fencers were in the call room. So I was just watching on the monitor with a few of the other volunteers in, in, in the warm-up pool. And we were watching the fight. And Zagunis started out really well. She was 8-2 up at the break and carried on. It got to about 12, I think it was 12-5. And, you know, she was cruising to the win. And I'd already started noting down because the, the loser of the semi-final because of the timings for going on for the bronze medal match would be coming straight to final warm-up. So I was making sort of sure I knew who I was expecting, which coaches I could let in and so on. And then something happened at 12.5 and I don't know what it was, but Mara's going to, she just completely mentally, something went completely off and she just fell apart. Everything started to go wrong. Kim Jun started to get points back and she kept coming and she kept coming. And in the end, from being 12-5 up, Zagunis lost 15-13 in the Olympic semi-final. We're all, all the volunteers, we were sort of watching this just increasingly open mouth going, what is going on? And I was all watching and there was just a brief moment on the TV footage of, as she sort of, after she'd shaken hands, she was turning to come back off and they just caught her face for a couple of seconds. And Zagunis had a very legendary sort of steel-gazed face. She looked into the camera and I was just like, oh, dear, this was someone who had, you know, for all that she was, you know, the same lock steely gaze, you could see there was a volcano going off behind this. She was so upset with herself. And I'm like, she's coming here now and she is furious. This isn't going to be fun. We The rules for us backstage, we couldn't leave athlete unattended for like doping control reasons. So. One of the games makers had to stay there. I was like, right, that's going to be me. And so I turned to all the other volunteers and said, all of you, you do not want to be here right now. So cleared the room of everyone else, went and put a stack of towels and a few bottles of drinks so she could choose something in, in one corner of the room. And I went and sort of sat in the very other corner. This was like an eight-piece fencing hall, so quite big space. So I'm sat in one corner just by the door. And the door... I won't say it got slammed off its hinges, but it was certainly opened with a bit of force. And she comes in and 
it was kind of that moment when in cartoons when somebody's angry and you see they've got like the lightning bolts like flashing out their head it it was kind of that feeling and so i sort of just look at her and sort of vaguely gesture to the where i've just put out the tile the towels and the drink and she just looks at me and then just strides off picks up gets in the corner picks about and just sits down and she's just glaring at the wall and i just was like i don't want to say anything so i literally i just turned around in the far corner and just sat down staring at the wall in front of me and we literally just sat there opposite corners of this hall for about probably about 10 15 minutes just absolute silence. me pretending out trying to pretend i wasn't there her probably trying to pretend she wasn't there and it just this absolute crackle of energy and rage coming from that corner and i'm just like you're trying my level best not to make any noise or make any movement that might provoke anything. And I, I've got to be fair to her, you know, she, you know, she was in no way that, that nobody should get the idea that she was, you know, chucking things or anything like that. She was completely, you know, professional all the way, to, you know, not a problem at all, but, Oh, it was the, you could feel the emotion. And at one point her coach, I remember he, he just, I just felt heard the door slightly open and saw her coach, put his head in he sort of looked at me i sort of gestured oh she's over in that corner he sort of peeped around the door looked at her for a couple of seconds and then shook his head and walked back out because he knew that there was just nothing he could say after about 10 15 minutes um the call room people came in to get her for the bronze medal match and off she went uh but yeah that that 10 15 minutes of just sitting with this athlete who just you know in her mind completely blown what she'd it, you know she'd expected to come in away with the gold medal and she in her mind just completely blown it and just that 10 minutes it's it's a really weird experience of just sitting with somebody with just that much emotion just going on inside them really profound feeling that i i, I very vividly remember and it was an, an amazing experience the whole of 2012 but that really stuck in my head so can I ask what the outcome was of her next match? Um, she, yeah, she, to be honest, I don't think, I think she was still up in her head. Um, she went into the bronze medal match and I believe she lost, I know she lost it. I think it was about 15-10, but I think she was just, she was, you know, she completely something, I don't, I have no idea what it was, but just something completely threw her in that moment. And um, yeah, it is remarkable, really remarkable evening i mean the men's epic that evening was epic as well yeah that was a particular moment for me it just demonstrates doesn't it what fencing hangover can be and what it can feel like and what it can do to you and how long it can last yeah i think it's one of these things where just a little thing can completely upset your mind it's so hard to get it back middle of the day and you know in that moment at that level i think you know very few people ever could get it back that way so And I bet she can still remember what it was, perhaps. But anyway, let's move on. So my last question, what does the future hold for you going forward? Well, I mean, the next next sort of uh, step in terms of the future, I'll be at the BYCs coming up shortly. That's the sort of the busiest armory weekend of the year, um, just because we get all the sort of people who it's their first big tournament. They're often bringing club kit that's just sat in the back of the cupboard for years. And so we'll be, and we'll spend a lot of time as well, teaching people who've never done this sort of thing. You know, we'll spend a lot of the first day teaching parents who've never really been to a fancy tournament, how to help their kids test weapons and things like that. I mean, looking forward, um, you know, I think, I'll, you know, mostly I will be 
keeping doing what we do. You know, we're really keen to try and sort of show everyone what Armory has to offer. There's a few voices out there sort of saying, well, you know, fencers should just be able to fix all their own kit. And yeah, absolutely. You know, we're all in favor of fencers being self-sufficient. But at the same time, there's a level of that that we know if you ever if you ever see an armor at an event, you'll see, you know, we're carrying huge toolboxes. And there's really obscure stuff in there that people don't know about. So, for example, I in my toolbox, I've got, um, well, here's a little quiz for you. Um, so I'll, I'll give you some items that I've got in my toolbox and you can tell me, see if you can tell me what you think they might be used for. So, for example, I have nail varnish. So with nail varnish, I believe that's probably to help insulate the wires going down a blade. Uh, yeah, very good. Um, it's that. It's also about repairing. If you get a little break in the insulation when it's glued down, you can sometimes just reseal it with the nail varnish. Um, so that's that one. All right, then um, let's try dental floss. So this would just be a complete guess. Is it something to do with the tips of blades? No, I've got it. Good dental hygiene. <laughs> it is that certainly yeah always remember to floss um no uh the we use it for doing uh temporary repairs to whites so um jackets breeches if they've got if the seam's gone we'll sew it back up but we use dental floss uh for two reasons firstly it's very very strong but also because it's waxed the material that fencing breeches are made of is really hard to sew through and really hard to pull a thread through but the wax coating on the uh, floss actually makes it much easier to sew with um, the first question we always ask a prospective armor is, do you know how to sew? You know, they usually come to us because they know how to use tools, but actually being able to sew and make repairs to fabric is just as important. Um, so yeah, that's another one. And then the last one I'll ask you then, um, cigarette paper. And it's nothing to do with smoking. I have literally got no idea on that at all. Please enlighten us. So the cigarette paper is, um, it's a fix for a particular problem in Epe, where if you over tighten your grub screws, sometimes they can cut through the insulation at the bottom of the socket and what that does is it creates a short from the wires out into the barrel and out to earth so your saw just won't light and as a the, the uh, normally the fix is that you just actually completely replace the tip but as a quick fix um, we get a little corner of cigarette paper and just pack that into the bottom of the screw hole and then screw the screw down on top of it and it just insulates it so um you know, when people sort of say, you know, you know, fence should be self-sufficient. Yeah, absolutely, up to a point. But there's always these odd, obscure things that, you know, no fencer is going to carry all the parts and equipment that an armorer does. And we carry them so that you guys don't have to. So by all means, you know, if we get to the point where it's only if it's the weird and exotic stuff that's coming to us, we'll be thrilled because actually they're often more interesting for us. Of course, yeah. We all got to start somewhere we don't all become experts instantly as soon as you start fencing you don't know about necessarily electrics or point screws and even what a grub screw is so we're all learning from somewhere and it's really good that you offer those things through things like ask the armorer definitely and it's the other thing actually that as, as a guild of armorers when we said about arranging you know covery tournaments the other thing we're very happy to do for you know clubs or anyone out there we're very happy to arrange for you to have a course in armory skills. You know, we'll come down to a club night or whatever, and we'll teach a session on, you know, basics of, you know, how to maintain your kit, how to look after it. And, you know, we're always happy to do that. So, you know, if that's something that's of interest to anybody out there, do get in touch with us. Again, you can find us through Ask the Armourers on Facebook. And, yeah, we'll try and set you up with something. So thanks ever so much for joining us, Tim. There's just one thing left for us to do. 
And that's Screamer of the Month. Yeah, brilliant. Actually, a little factoid there. Um, one of the armourers, I'll name check him, Alistair Savage, um, he actually carries a decibel meter, which he refers to as the Screamer meter in his toolkit, um, basically just because we get curious about just how loud some of these screams are. So we're just sort of measuring from peace side. And I think the peak volume we've come across is somewhere around 115 decibels. Just to give you some context on that, that's sort of the level of rock concerts and uh, the actual pain threshold for human hearing is usually about 110 decibels. So when you're screaming at your referee, maybe not hurting their ears might make them more inclined to like you. After listening to these three tracks, it's your job to try and identify which one you think is the fencer doing the screaming by choosing tracks A, B or C. That's a tough one. Um, that, yeah, that, that, that's making it tricky. Uh, I don't think it's C because that sounds like two people, and it sounds like it sounds more like a mixed doubles game in tennis to me. Uh, I think I'm going to go with A. Well, track C was some lynx cats screaming. Oh. <laughs> track B was from a film. Okay. And as you can probably tell, we've kind of gone animals, film and fences. So that means, obviously, you've got it correct with track A. Congratulations. Well, my apologies to tennis players who I just compared to Lynx's. Oh, dear. So it just remains for me to thank Tim Coveney for joining us on Fencing Stories. Hopefully you've had a nice time and we'll speak again. Thanks a lot, Nick. Cheers. Thank you very much. This is Nicholas Partridge. I've just been fencing at CADS, which is based in Colchester, and it's been a truly international evening of fencing on a Monday night. There were fencers from Canada, Hong Kong, France, Poland, and I think China. So, as, as well as lots of fencers from the UK. A nice evening of fencing. Lots of fun, lots of good hits. Got hit a lot, hit some people a lot. You know, that's what fencing is. So I'm here with Lyndon Taylor from CADS, which is based in Colchester. I'm here on a Monday night. Lyndon, tell me a bit about the club. Well, thanks. Well, we meet on a Monday from 7.30 to 9.30. What weapons do you fence? We manage to do all three. I have a coaching squad of four coaches. Well, thanks very much for telling us about the club, Lyndon. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you.